Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, Ann and Lewis are speaking with Anthony Coniglio, CEO of New Lake Capital Partners, an independent investment vehicle focused on acquiring a diversified real estate portfolio of industrial and retail properties in the cannabis industry. To date, New Lake has acquired a real estate portfolio from coast to coast with tenants across the supply chain, including cultivation, manufacturing, and retail, providing these companies with much needed liquidity. Given the current state of the markets, both inside and outside of cannabis, this one is well worth the listen. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now into our conversation with Anthony, Lewis, and Anne. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we are excited to have you on. And before we jump into the topic on everyone's mind, which is obviously COVID-19, can you just give our listeners an overview of who you are and who New Lake Capital Partners is? Yes. First, thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate the time you're giving me today. New Lake is a real estate company focused on building a diversified portfolio of retail and industrial properties that we lease to companies in the cannabis sector for use as dispensaries, as well as cultivation, processing, and manufacturing facilities. Our properties are acquired using a sale-leaseback transaction, and our tenants are some of the most experienced and well-run businesses in the industry. Companies, companies such as Grassroots, Columbia Care, and most recent addition to our New Lake family um, that we announced a couple of weeks ago was Pharmacan. Um, our model is quite simple. We earn revenue by charging rent. Our investors receive a nice, healthy quarterly dividend, and we believe there will be significant appreciation in the value of our portfolio as, uh, as the legal status of cannabis changes over time. And for my part, I'm the CEO of New Lake Capital Partners and excited to be part of our organization and part of this growing industry. You know, you, you've, you've explained pretty much how a sale leaseback works. Why is cannabis the right industry for this, this strategy, this financial tool um, right now? Well, it, it's, it's a very attractive tool for the cannabis industry because it allows operators to raise non-dilutive capital. And as you know, the industry has been capital starved for a large part since the better part of the last year. And so we're providing operators the opportunity to unlock capital that's sitting on their balance sheet in the form of real estate. For us, we saw an opportunity to fill a major need for real estate capital since traditional providers can't service the industry due to the federal classification of cannabis. Um, we assembled a great team of entrepreneurs and business executives, people who have significant experience in cannabis and real estate and financial services to go out and capture this opportunity. Um, if you just step back for a minute and think about the cannabis industry, it requires significant investment in real estate. That would be for facilities to grow, manufacture, package, and sell the product. And we provide, as I said earlier, that non-dilutive capital so that um, they could take the locations that they own today, monetize them, and focus on their core business, which is building brands, growing cannabis and uh, generating revenue via sales. 
Um, how big is the fund? How much have you deployed? And how much dry powder do you have? We've raised about $100 million. We've executed uh, with four tenants, 20 properties across eight states for total investment of about $75 million. And so we have about $25 million left to invest. And I'll take we're it. continuing to raise capital. <laughs> You'll take it <laughs> for sure. Can we talk a little bit about the, the structure of the deals um, with, you know, you mentioned Pharmacan and Grassroots and um, Columbia Care. Um, you know, can you, can you talk about how those deals, uh, you know, are, are they similar in their structure? Are they each a little bit different? You know, what's the playbook? Yes, I, I would first describe and just tell you that as a general matter, a sale leaseback transaction is where the operator owns the real estate and they sell us the property while entering into a long-term lease with us so they could stay in the property, continue operating it as a dispensary or a manufacturing location or a cultivation facility without interruption. So that's the basic premise and, and that is consistent throughout our transactions. For the different operators, of course, there are always nuances in any particular transaction that are relative to uh, the individual organization. And what we try to do is we try to make sure that we're responsive to each one of our tenants' needs and we're structuring transactions to be proactive in addressing those needs. And so you'll see some nuances. But for the most part, we're providing our tenants with that capital that they can go out and either invest in the building to enhance the building's capabilities, whether it be aesthetics in the dispensary or whether it be building expansion grow rooms onto the cultivation facility. Um, we allow them to take our capital and utilize it to do those activities. What you've described is is your clients all are MSOs. Um, and I, I, I want to take a moment to talk about that MSO model for a second. It, it is a massively capital intensive model. Um, and given what's happening in the world today with, you know, a, a lockdown um, due to COVID and also pre-COVID, the, the massive capital crunch, does the, does the, do you still think the vertically integrated model still works or is there going to be a pivot in how these companies are structured where they're going to be less vertically integrated and, you know, more like uh, maybe a MedMen where they're just focused on dispensaries or more like a company that just focuses on cultivation or, or processing. Does the MSL model, in your view, does that model still work? I believe it does. I believe any model, I don't want to say any model. I, I believe the success of a model is really driven by the quality of its management team. And so there are many single state operators who are wildly successful because their management team is hyper-focused on one particular market and they're killing it in that market. I think there are vertically integrated uh, businesses on a regional level that are doing unbelievably well, again, because their management team has the capability to navigate the needs of that particular regional market. And then there are nationally vertically integrated cannabis operators who are doing well, meeting their numbers and growing their businesses. And those management teams have the capability to navigate the issues that are unique to their business. And within each one of those segments, whether it's state, regional, or national, I could probably point you to three or four other additional names without naming names where it's not going well. Oh, name names. Come on. <laughs> Maybe in another forum. Um, <laughs> but I really do believe it's, it's the management team that dictates it. But then I would also just lastly add, 
Um, I also believe that as a generalist, you have the ability to see more and understand more about your business. And so if the vertically integrated operators pivot at some point in time to go to one part of the value chain, whether it be on the manufacturing side, the cultivation side, or the retail side, I think those companies will be well served having been vertically integrated and having to understand the entire industry from seed to sale. Um, and I think that would give them a leg to really perform on any one particular segment that they chose to focus on. Well, you actually did a nice little segue there. I was going to ask about your focus um, on having a diversified portfolio. Um, can you talk about what your diversification is like in an environment like this? We, we made a strategic decision at the outset of our business nearly 16, 18 months ago to not be focused as a spin out of someone's properties. We totally believe and espouse the virtues of diversification and anybody who does any investing understands that it is a core tenant of investing to be diversified. And we believe that's serving us well today. And when we think diversification, it's diversification not only by tenant, by state, as well as by use type. And so when we see right now that different states and even municipalities within the states are coming up with different rules about what can stay open and what can't stay open, it feels good for us to, be, um, um, to have our investment dollars distributed around those particular states and municipalities so that if one particular municipality, for instance, makes a decision that's adverse to our tenant, um, that's limited just to that jurisdiction, and we don't have $50, $60 million tied up in that one particular tenant or location. So we very much like the diversification we have. It's a core tenant of our business, and when we look to do additional deals, we're looking to only enhance our diversification. Co COVID is changing everything, right? Um, if you look at what's happening with with retail sales generally, you know, Macy's laid off 130,000 of its employees. Um, Sephora just laid off, all, you know, furloughed all of their employees. With cannabis right now, you know, it's a mixed bag. There's been this unbelievable burst of buying activity and cannabis, um, you know, medical dispensaries have been deemed essential, uh, you know, medical supplying facilities so they're staying open, changing how they're selling, whether it be delivery or curbside. Do you think that there is a fundamental change in the way that retail is going to be done? And does that, how does that impact on your calculus of how you look at your portfolio today and how you may invest, whether it's the $25 million of dry powder that you have now, or if you raise another fund in the future, how you're going to invest that? It is, I think that is the big question that a lot of companies are struggling with. Um, I think as a broad retail matter, I could see both sides where people will seek the in-person engagement as a respite from getting out of their home is a temporary blip, but also the comfort with which we're all ordering more online may create habits that last. As it pertains to cannabis, however, I do think that we will see um, more of a return to where we were pre-COVID. I think that state regulators will continue to want to see cannabis dispersed out of the dispensary in the controlled environment, much the way alcohol and pharmaceuticals are distributed through liquor stores and, um, and pharmacies, particularly in the limited license states, which is a big focus of ours. 
Um, and so I think we'll see some change, but I think more broadly, um, I'm one of those people that believes that this too shall pass and we will largely go back to the habits we had beforehand with uh, minimal change on the, uh, on the cannabis retail front. Pre-COVID-19, we would be talking about the capital crunch that was hitting the industry anyway. Um, and you guys coming in and, and providing this business model specifically to solve liquidity and access to capital. Um, how has the last month or six weeks or <laughs> feels like seven years changed your business? Um, you know, is your, or, or has it, is it, is your phone ringing off the hook? Like what's it like for you now? Well, you're correct. Opportunities continue to present themselves as you would imagine environment when some companies were close to closing a capital round and that round may not have closed. Um, we're certainly seeing people come to our door to revisit transactions that we talked about months ago or to present new transactions. Um, what's changed for us is that we're a bit more cautious, as you would expect. We want to observe how the market normalizes in, in this environment in the coming weeks. None of us really know how long the restrictions on shelter in place will last. Um, and when they do end, we, we don't really have a sense for what it's going to look like for the first few weeks and months after that. And so um, while we've got a disciplined underwriting approach, we want to be sure we're basing our decisions off of financial information, projections, and operating performance that's actually representative, expect, representative excuse me, of expected future operations. And so we're sitting back right now, continuing dialogue, but really learning, observing, and doing our research to figure out what does a normalized environment look like for the remainder of 2020? Um, and how long will this take to get back to business as usual in the cannabis industry? I mean, it's it's got to be almost impossible, right? I mean, if you're an operator, say you're you know, West Coast-based single-state operator or you're a Midwest-based multi-state operator, how are they projecting revenues, right? I mean, I would assume that every public company today stops giving guidance. Um, and if you're working with a company that can't give guidance, how are you evaluating right now, you know, if, if you know, for, for argument's sake, Columbia Care came back to you and said, look, you know, we've got another five facilities, each facility we're valuing at two million bucks. So we need another 10. How are you evaluating that? Or are you got saying to them, guys, we got to wait. Like, I know you need the money right now, but there is no way that we can have a clue as to how to value these facilities. Well, one of the nice things about the cannabis industry is it evolved and has been growing up in uh, the data orientation age and also driven by many state requirements to track sales data. And so one of the aspects um, that's different here than in some industries is we have the ability, not just we proprietarily, but the industry itself can see sales data on a weekly basis and in some states on a daily basis. And as we watch the next few weeks unwind, we can see, do sales volumes normalize? Do we have uh, another peak? Is there another peak in, in sales like it was a couple of weeks ago? But what we expect is we do expect some normalization of sales to occur. And so you're right. I don't think people should be providing guidance out there because there's no way to truly know where it's going to go. Having said that, I think that after you take out 
the first week of the surge buying, the second week where maybe people had bought what they needed for the first week and they were overstocked. I think by the third week, fourth week, and fifth week, we'll see a, call it a normalization of what to expect during a shelter in place. And the other point I wanted to make here is, at least for our part, the way we think about this is we put cannabis into two categories, both medical and recreational. On the medical side, we think about patients that are going to get relief with cannabis products, and we put those in a non-discretionary small ticket category similar to other healthcare items. And when we've done the research and looked at that cat- those categories and how they performed in previous recessions, it tells us that those categories hold up pretty well um, and in some cases even grow, you know, particularly understanding that cannabis is a, is a product that people seek relief from anxiety um, which I think a lot of us are, are having right now. And so we would expect to see <laughs> a continued demand. On the recreational side, you know, it's really akin to alcohol or tobacco, um, where it is a discretionary small ticket item. However, when you look at previous recessions, alcohol and tobacco were already very mature markets. In, um, in cannabis, it's not as mature a market. It was growing 20% year over year nationally. Does it continue to grow that way? Perhaps, but even if it slows by 50%, you still have a 10% growth market. So we do think from, you know, broadly speaking, that once buying behaviors normalize, we do see when we look at um, previous recessions in industries that there should be some baseline of sales that we could underwrite transactions off of. What's the long play for New Lake Capital? Does your um, does your business change once things like the States Act pass, or let's say we get a Biden administration in 2021, um, and he comes to sanity and decides to federally legalize cannabis or DE or reschedule it? Um, you know, once there are more traditional forms of liquidity available, will deals like this still be of interest? Um, for sure, we 100% believe that they will be. Sale leaseback is a real estate strategy that's employed by most mainstream companies. Whether it's Starbucks or Walgreens or even Amazon, most companies look to REITs and other landlords um, for their real estate needs because they want to remain asset-light businesses. And so we think deals like this are here to stay. You know, much the way um, there is a subsegment of the real estate market focused on data centers, logistics, cell towers, we think cannabis is another subsegment of the real estate market that's here to stay. With respect to legislation, my bias is I think things always take longer than you want, they're harder than you think, and they cost more money than you think. And so even under Biden administration, I still think it's a long road for legalization. But even when it does come and the federal government normalizes cannabis, there will be a slew of rulemaking that has to occur in the industry. Um, and that rulemaking process, whether it be looking at what the federal regulators did around hemp and how long it took for rules to come out there, or whether it be looking at financial regulators and even the fact that there are Dodd-Frank laws or rules that haven't been written yet, it will take quite some time that would be measured in quarters, not even months or weeks. Um, it'll take quite some time for the regulators to write those regulations. Uh, and many of the players will wait for those regulations before they come into the market. I would then tell you that I've also run businesses um, where, where the main product was a commodity, right? Here, our product is, is capital and we're a company. We're not a fund. So our play is a long play. We expect to be here for, 
for years and years to come and grow and thrive for years to come. Um, and so we look at this as an investment and as a business, not a particular trade. And so in other businesses that I've run where capital was a commodity, how do you differentiate yourself? You differentiate yourself by understanding your client's business, providing great, serv- great service, and being responsive to their needs. And we intend to take our early mover advantage that we have here in establishing those relationships and establishing that reputation so that when the inevitable competition does come up, we um, can maintain our leadership position in the marketplace. Cannabis is or was the fastest growing employer in the country. Um, there are about 230,000 people who work in the cannabis industry right now, or did. I don't know what the number is today. Uh, we're, we're recording this on uh, April 3rd, 2020. Um, but it's still five times the size of the the coal mining industry, which has about 40,000 employees. Coal has the ability to tap into the $2 trillion relief bill. Cannabis doesn't. So the companies that you're working with, you know, if sales normalize at a level that was lower than it was a year ago, they may have a tough time making rent. How are you talking to your portfolio companies now about, okay, how are you going to make this triple net lease payment? Uh, and if they can't make it, are you, you know, how are you thinking about it? Of Is it a rent forgiveness thing, a rent deferment thing, or are you going to be taking buildings? <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's a, you know, it's a question that you see throughout the real estate industry today. Um, I think that we benefit for sure from having real estate to an industry that's still in business and still generating revenue and in some cases generating record revenue. Um, We certainly want to be supportive of our tenants and we're going to do our fair part to stabilize the industry. But I think it's too early to tell what will be needed since restrictions are different state by state and in some cases by the municipalities. And so what our approach is, um, is to be communicative with our tenants. Uh, Again, I go back to understanding their business, understanding what's happening on the ground in the locations that we own. So understanding those local restrictions and then asking them how it, uh, how it impacts their business. And in all of the conversations with our tenants thus far, you know, people, as you said earlier, are still trying to figure out exactly what the long-term impacts are. Um, and so once there's more clarity around that, then we can understand if there's a need. And if there is a need, then we'll have a robust dialogue with our tenants on how we can best address that need and be a partner. Anthony, you're holed up in Connecticut right now. What is an average day looking for uh, looking like for you and your business partners? I assume everything's virtual at this point. What's walk me through an average day in your life? Um, we have daily calls to talk about what information we're seeing coming out from the various states and municipalities that we have properties in. So it's really important for us to be on top of and understanding any emerging restrictions on the properties uh, where we have tenants. We continue to dialogue with our board on a regular basis. We continue to do research into where we think this, um, this industry is going to evolve to uh, in the context of COVID and the emergence. We are doing a lot of research on performance of other industries in recessions, as we expect that there will be a recession uh, once we come out of the immediacy of the health crisis. 
Um, we're spending time talking with our investors. Our investors want to understand where we are. We have over 150 investors in our company. And we're spending a lot of time talking to um, operators that are not tenants today and looking at their business, understanding uh, the opportunities available there and underwriting transactions. And we're being open with folks that we're not looking to pull the trigger today. We want to observe a little bit more, but um, we're building that pipeline and the relationships so that when we do feel comfortable that we can make a commitment, we can move quickly to be supportive of that next tenant that we plan to put in our portfolio. Are you going to be raising more capital soon or are you going to stick with what you've got and, and wait to ride this out? We, we think we're in a great position because we have a strong cash flowing portfolio of properties. As we stand today, we're profitable uh, we don't need capital in order to get to cash flow positive or get to profitability. We have that today, so we're in a very fortunate position. We have a lot of cash on the balance sheet to um, be opportunistic, um, to purchase properties or to enter into transactions with tenants. But we for sure are thinking about raising additional capital. It, our offering is somewhat unique in this environment. In a world where investors are starved for yield, we have a portfolio that's providing high single-digit, low double-digit, unlevered yield to investors without the balance sheet risk of debt that has duration and upside opportunity from either cap rate compression in the portfolio or ultimately a public listing of our, uh, of our company. And so it is a very unique investment opportunity relative to what others are looking at these days with less volatility and knowing that you have the downside protection of, of real estate and, and hardcore um, assets. So yes, we are uh, having those conversations internally and we'll be making decisions soon about um, launching another round. Anthony, let me go to my favorite question. Um, I am a big believer that we only learn from the mistakes in our lives, that you can stumble into success and not know why you were successful, but, Every time somebody fails, if they are a serious person, they look back and try and analyze where they made a mistake, why they made a mistake, and try and avoid it for the future. Can you talk about a mistake that you've made in your life, whether it be personal or professional, that informed you and made you the success you are today? Wow. That there's... Just put your feet up, put your feet up on the couch, put your head back and, and talk to Dr. Goldberg. There are so many. Um, you know, I'd say personally, it was not listening to my gut. I think we all come across moments in our life when we have to make a decision. And many times our gut really knows the right thing to do. And we then go with our head and we rationalize ourselves into the wrong decision. So on the personal side, it's, it's you know, my biggest mistakes were not listening to my gut. On the professional side, um, boy, the one I would pick is around people. Um, as you heard me talk about before, I believe management teams and, and the capability of the team that you're on is critically important. And my biggest mistakes have been not moving faster on the people issues, whether it be helping people to improve their performance or, or whether it be moving people out that have demonstrated that they weren't able to improve their performance. And boy, when I look back, I think we could have been more successful in some of the endeavors I've been involved with if we had moved faster on, um, on people. 
comes down to that. Yeah, we had the, you know, there's that business aphorism, hire slow and fire fast. And I can tell you from personal experience, you know, we, we have made that mistake where we have hired quickly and tried to fix and fix and fix and, and it has lingered and it has slowed down the general organization. And, and I wish that we had moved faster on some people than we had. So I appreciate your, your candor about that. And I would add, when I worked at J.P. Morgan for 15 years and ran a number of businesses there, when I left to start an entrepreneurial venture, I went to a number of my clients who were entrepreneurial themselves, and I asked them the same, the actual same question: What was your biggest mistake professionally? And I will tell you, to a person, to a person, it was always I moved too slow on the people issues. So when I started my entrepreneurial, my first entrepreneurial effort outside of a large Fortune 100 company, I I knew it. And I was aware of it, and I still was too slow. It's so hard because they're people. Like when you work with somebody day in and day out, regardless of how you feel, you develop a relationship with them. And, you know, letting somebody go is a major dislocation. It is really, really hard. But oftentimes, it's not only the best thing for you and your company, it's probably the best thing for that person too because they know when they're failing. It's not like somebody thinks that they're absolutely killing it every day and, and you blindside them with it. You know, if you are an honest manager and you're having conversations with them, they know they're failing. It's, it's just, you know, nobody wants to be the asshole that fires somebody on a Friday. I, com I completely agree. And it ties into another important aspect, I believe, in business and it's communication. I think that most good things that happen in business and personal life is due to good communication and most bad things probably have some element of poor communication. And so if you're communicating well with the people on your team and you're providing feedback on a regular basis, there really should be no surprises. Um, and it comes down to just plain old management. Do you care enough for people that you're going to take the time out of your day to do the basics of managing, to communicate about what's going well and what's not going well? And here we're on to my favorite question, which is, what's the media missing in terms of getting this industry right? Um, you know, in other words, I guess take COVID out of the equation for now, I guess, or leave it in if you want. Um, but what's the one story you would love to see on tomorrow's front page of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or USA Today? I think people outside of the industry should focus more on the medical and health benefits that so many people are getting from cannabis. I think there's too much media attention on the recreational part. There's too much remembering of what was advertised as cannabis um, from the 70s, 80s, 90s. And I think we really need more of an effort so that there's a better understanding of why so many people turn to cannabis for relief. I mean, when I started getting involved in the industry, and I would do tours of facilities, I would tour dispensaries, and I think we all expected a certain demographic, maybe when we started this, a, a demographic of people waiting in line for cannabis, but in fact, most of what I saw were people in pain. Um, uh, a veteran in crutches waiting in line for cannabis to deal with pain, uh, an older woman waiting in line for cannabis for anxiety, um, and many, many other stories. And so I think if we really put a face to the healthcare benefits, 
Um, and I think because society still has this leftover view of cannabis from the decades of negative reporting on it, or even some of the personal experiences people had in college, um, I think that's the face of it. And I think we have to remove that and really put the face of the patient on it so that there could be a new understanding of what cannabis is really about. Well said. Thank you so much, Anthony. We really appreciate you taking the time with us this afternoon. Um, Anything else you want to add? No, I enjoyed our time together. Um, I hope you all have a great weekend. Stay healthy, as they say. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing you all in person when we can you get too. back yes. together in person. Us too. Yes. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you. A special thanks to Anthony Coniglio, CEO of New Lake Capital Partners. Um, you can find him and New Lake uh, at www. I said www. What a moron. But it's at newlake.com. As always, thank you for listening, especially in this time of complete anxiety, stress. I hope and Ann hopes and Shay hopes that you are finding some entertainment, some distraction, and of value information from us. Um, if you want, you can find us and chat with us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. You can always drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for feedback, guest ideas, anything. Please Take a moment to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcaster. Rate and review us. It helps others like you find us. And we, again, we appreciate every moment that you give us. We all have a limited amount of time to live and that yours choosing to spend that time with us is something that we take very seriously. That's one take, Shay. One motherfucking take.